Hard to not walk with a swagger with an intro like that. That's nice. You gotta incorporate that in DC. Man, it is so great to see all of you. And it's just fun to be back in Texas. I'm from here, born, raised. My wife and I and kids are up in Washington, DC, uh, which is crazy. COVID just ended there. Apparently it ended here quite a while ago. But um, we're still carrying our masks around and such. But uh, this is fun to see us all together. And uh, it's such an honor to be here. And before I jump into the text we're in tonight, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a copy of your scriptures and want to read, I'll be there. If you don't, just listen. Uh, but before we get to it, I just want to say, um, you know, I know this series is hot takes. This is not a hot take. This is just a fact. Uh, and that is that uh, David uh, Marvin is a phenomenal leader. And watching him lead this has been inspiring to me. Yeah, you can, let's keep going, because he's done an amazing job of leading this ministry. And um, the fact that cities all over the U.S. are taking their cues from you is something that's uh, special. It's special, brother. It's an honor to be here, and uh, so grateful to see all your faces. So, all right. Uh, with that said, let me read a passage about sex and make it weird. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking, by the way, says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Uh, let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you for every person here, whether they um, love you and, and worship was the thing they were looking forward to all week, or whether they're not sure about any of this and they're just here trying to maybe find some answers. I just thank you that we're all here and there's a possibility tonight to, to know what our, our maker thinks about how we're made and how to best live the life we've been given. And so I'm asking for your help, God. Would you open our minds that we would understand what it is you're thinking about? And I pray you'd open our hearts that uh, we could feel what you care about. And then, Lord, I just pray we could be changed as a result of these few minutes. I, I, I feel it tonight. I need your grace. We do. We just ask for your grace, God, to teach us and to help us. And I just want to invite you, whether this is like a normal thing for you or not, if you're up for it, maybe take a second here. And if you're willing, you just pray for a second and ask him. If you're up for it, you talk to God and say, Lord, please teach me something tonight. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I fell asleep driving one time. Uh, when I was in high school, I was making a long run down to Laredo by myself. 
and uh, woke up bumping along the side of the road and did what a lot of people do, overcorrected in a panic, spun my truck 180, a miracle that I didn't kill myself or anybody else. But uh, as I kind of hit reverse and got back into the right direction and had to keep going because I was in the middle of nowhere in Texas, I realized I need something to keep me awake and the music I brought along is not doing it. And so I remembered that a mentor of mine, like a college kid at the time, had, had encouraged me to um, listen to these sermons. He had given me these sermons said, hey man, you need to listen to these. And I remember just thinking that was the strangest thing ever. Like, who listens to a sermon in a car? Uh, but I brought them and then suddenly I thought, well, you know what? I need to stay awake. Maybe listening to someone talk will help, but I got to find something that's going to keep me conscious. And so I opened this thing and looked at all these titles and in the middle of it, there was a uh, talk entitled Sex. And I thought, that ought to do it. And so I put it in <laughs> and started playing it and the craziest thing happened. About midway through it, I started crying like, like an embarrassing, snotty cry. And it wasn't because he was shaming me at all. There was no finger wagging in the whole thing. He, he was just actually unpacking the book of Song of Solomon, the book of love in the Old Testament, and, and just painting the picture of what the enjoyment of the gift of sex was meant to be like. And I started crying, I realized, because the image I had been given and the assumptions I'd been given by pornography, which was introduced in my life at a fairly young age, was such an anemic and distorted view. I realized I had such a small view of what sex was meant to be. And so I, I cried over the loss of a beautiful picture and the possibility of discovering it again. And so as I say that, I, I read you the language of Jesus from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to get into what Jesus is saying about it. But before that, I want to pick up where David and J.D. had left off a little bit in talking about the subject to, to really just make the point before we get into what Jesus is doing, which is kind of restricting some expressions of sexuality. I want to talk about the reality that I think many of you know, maybe some of you don't though, but that the scriptures are not prude when they talk about sexuality. Actually, they're more bold-faced than often we are or even comfortable talking about in spaces like this. Uh, the book of Song of Solomon, if you've never read it, is this book of great love and celebrating sexuality. It's fun, and sex is meant to be fun. You see the guy at the beginning is likened to a gazelle, and he's just leaping towards the woman's house, very excited. All right, she's saying, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth. She's very excited. It gets to their wedding day, and you see that he's riding towards her in this luxuriant couch surrounded by soldiers. That man, she feels protected, and she feels provided for. And then you show up at the wedding, and then the book does not drop off at the door of the bridal chamber. It walks you right into it. And as you walk into that chamber, he begins to compliment her and he starts with her hair and then moves down to her eyes and her nose and her mouth and her neck and he travels down her body. And you get into Song of Solomon 4. I'll just read you some of this. This ought to be fun. In Song of Solomon 4, 5, he says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Why does he call her breasts deer? Well, the idea is... <laughs> You don't run up fast on fawns. You're not like, hey, fawns. Like you, there's a gentleness <laughs> to the entry into their sexuality. 
And he says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Let me tell you, if you were to look at the maps in the back of your Bible and try to find in Israel the mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense, you won't find them. They don't exist there geographically. Earlier in the book, she says that she kept a little sachet of perfume between her breasts. So when he says all night long, I'm going to the mountains of myrrh, he's not talking about a place out of town. He's gearing up for good times. And as he says it, he's talking and he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peaks of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of leopards. He says, let's get away from, from uh, a, a context where you just want to be devoured. That's a wild animal. Let me just use and devour you. He says, let's get away from that world. Let's, let's steal away to a secret place that's life-giving for us. And as he speaks to her, he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes and with one jewel of your necklace. He calls her sister, not because they were biologically related, but because they had such a deep connection of friendship and familial love that's now blossoming into erotic love. That that he calls her in other places uh, a word you could translate best friend. She's his friend. But as he speaks to her, he says, your love is much better than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Honey and milk were the only foods back then that didn't require a death. And so he's saying, this this enjoyment of your body, this sexuality has no sorrow added to it. There's no death in this place. It's just life. It's just life. He tells her in verse 12, he compares her body, her sexuality to a garden. He says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranate with all choice fruits, henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrhs and aloes, with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. He compares her body to this garden and then she speaks and says, awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Dang. (laughs) And then the very next verse, he says, I came to my garden. My sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine and my milk. Now, it's unclear how much time elapsed between those two verses. Could have been three minutes. Could have been five. Could have been 15 minutes. Commentators aren't sure. But the point is, the very next statement is not made by him or her. It's made presumably by their friends, maybe by God himself. But this is inspired scripture. I think you could say both. The response to this erotic expression is eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's your Bible. What's the Bible's response to sexuality? Eat, drink, get drunk with your love. The Bible's not prude as it speaks of sexuality. It's a gift. It's a gift that's meant to be enjoyed. And yet it's also, did you catch, it's, it's compared to a garden. And, and if you look at the text, a garden locked, it's, it's, a, it's a walled garden. 
the idea of a garden back then is you, you would nurture exotic plants and fruits, and so it would be wild and exotic and exciting and have fruit that was nourishing and life-giving, but then it's also walled off, sealed, protected, secret. And so the picture of their sexuality here is that it's pleasure that's protected. And in the Bible, the boundary is pretty clear that God puts around sex. All of us, incidentally, in society put boundaries around sex. Well, most all of us do put boundaries around sex. The common boundaries in America today are consent and age. In the Bible, the boundary is covenant. That someone says, I want all of you, not just your body, but I want all of you. I want to know your thoughts. I want your mind. I want your emotions. I want your heart. I want your body. I want our futures and our life and our finances bound together. I'm giving all of me, and I want all of you. And as we commit our entire lives together, our sex together is an expression of this covenant that we've made. So the Bible kind of locks sexuality within the boundaries of a covenant of love. And within that covenant of promise to care for you, you're meant to enjoy it. It's meant to be fun. Proverbs 5 says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. A man enjoying his wife's breasts is not necessary for procreation. (laughs) Like that's not what he's saying there. He's saying, have fun. Enjoy it. It's a gift. But he says earlier, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. He says, enjoy that garden within its protective boundaries. Don't let it flow out into the streets. And I say all that because that was the context as Jesus is preaching that people would have about sexuality. And Jesus kind of picks it up and talks about that. Enjoy, but within the confines. Why let the springs flood the streets? So he says in verse 27 of the passage I read in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the seventh of the 10 commandments. Adultery is somebody who's married having sex with somebody who they're not married to. And he says, this is a boundary. And incidentally, this is a boundary that almost all Americans agree with, that if you've made a covenant of marriage with somebody, you should not take your sexuality outside that covenant. There's a, a nationwide study called Relationships in America that conducts a study all across America to talk about the nature of our relationships. And in that, a phrase was offered up, it's permissible for a married person to have sex with someone other than their spouse. 10% of men in America in this survey said yes, 5% of women said yes. So 90% of men in America, 95% of women agree with Jesus here. It is not right for someone who's married to have sex with someone who's not their spouse. So I'm not gonna belabor that verse because Most of America already believes that one. We agree with Jesus on that one, except for roughly 10% of men. So look out, ladies. But (laughs) Jesus is gonna do something pretty crazy in the next verse. He says, you've heard that. It's in the Ten Commandments. In verse 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in its heart. He does something there that, if you really think about it, In the Old Testament, he just takes the seventh of the Ten Commandments and the tenth of do not covet and puts them together. So so it's it's not, in a sense, new, but it is an intensification of verse 7. He's paddling upstream from the act of infidelity. And he says, you know where we need to cut this stream off? It's all the way back at images and intent and imagination. How what you take in through your eyes affects your heart. He says, more than action... I want to talk about images and intent and imagination. 
That's where Jesus puts it. What's going on inside your heart, right? And really what he's doing here is he's creating a very different boundary, a much higher one. You could say it in maybe modern language is what he's doing is he's calling for the end of objectification of women. That's the idea. I think we're more comfortable with some of that language. But we can say if Jesus is saying, hey, looking at images that are affecting your imagination with lustful intent is out of bounds, I think we can acknowledge that's a pretty high bar. Like, that's pretty wild. That, that sexuality is only meant to be in, enjoyed within the covenant of marriage is very restrictive. And I think if we're honest in the culture today, a lot of people might say, that's too much. That's too restrictive. That's too much. Um, it wasn't that long ago in America, a couple of decades ago, that there was a great sexual revolution that people said, hey, these boundaries around sex are too tight. We need to kick some of these walls down, loosen up a little bit, and kind of let the streams flow. We got to move it out a little bit, right? And then as technology caught up in the 80s and the 90s, this loosening of sexual boundaries really took off through technology and has created, I think today, a really different world for you and for me. And so what I want to do in the rest of our time is not really talk about sex so much, but talk about what Jesus is talking about, imagery, that's affecting our imagination, the, what we see with our eyes that's affecting our hearts. Because there's been a shift in the world today, particularly for your generation to deal with. And so I wanna look at the proliferation of sexual imagery, the, the problems it creates, the principle Jesus lays out, and the practices that he would recommend. Now, as soon as I say that, let me say this. My goal is not to shame anybody. And that's always the risk when you talk about stuff like this. It's like you can see the wave of shame hit people. And it's sad because the reason I started where I did is talking about sex is supposed to be fun. But as soon as we moved to this, I watched the shame hit people's face. And I don't like that. I don't think we feel good about some of how we're handling this gift from God. So let me just tell you, my goal here is not to make anybody here feel ashamed or feel bad. I just want to kind of give you the lay of the land of where we are as a culture assess it, and then show us a different path that Jesus offers us. Does that make sense? So let's talk about the proliferation of sexualized imagery. Uh, again, Mark Regneris, who's a research professor at the University of Texas, of all places. Can you believe I'm quoting a guy from UT? But there it is. He uh, studies sexuality, particularly yours, folks. And he quotes a lot of information that I'm going to mention here, including this Relationships in America survey. And based on the surveys he looked at, currently in America, 84% of 14 to 18-year-old males and 57% of 14 to 18-year-old females have viewed pornography. So almost all high school age boys and, and a little over half high school age girls. So just to give you again, where we are as a society, it's now normal for minors to watch adults have sex on a screen. Uh, depending on what number you check, the number of explicitly pornographic sites in America consistently rank as some of the most visited websites on the planet, depending on when you check, it will land often in the top 10. I looked at November of 2020 at the top 10 websites viewed around the globe. Number one was Google. It's not surprising. Number two, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Wikipedia, Instagram, Baidu, which is China's version of Google, Yahoo, which frankly was surprising, Number nine was an explicitly pornographic website with 3.4 billion unique views per month. There's only like six, seven billion of us walking around here. That's quite a bit. 
And number 10 was a pornographic website that gets 3.3 billion unique monthly visits. And so if you combine those last two, they, those two websites alone are visited more than Instagram or Wikipedia. So what I'm talking about here is, is a global phenomenon. There's been a big shift on the planet Earth as it relates to sexual imagery, all right? Um, according to Covenant Eyes, the highest percentage of subscriptions to porn sites are found in zip codes that are more urban than rural, have higher than average household income, have a greater density of young people, have a higher proportion of people with undergrad degrees, and have a higher measure of social capital, meaning they like to donate, volunteer, and participate in community projects. So basically, a city like Dallas. Basically this room. Um, if limited to men 18 to 39 years old, uh, this was a, a, maybe the most helpful statistic. It, it's hard to kind of read who's struggling with pornography. If you ask somebody that, it's kind of a weird question to ask somebody. So the way they did it in the survey is ask, when's the last time you intentionally looked at an explicitly pornographic image? When's the last time you did that? Uh, 46% of men between 18 and 40 uh, said this past week. Uh, 16% of women uh, between 18 and 39 said the same. So within your age bracket, 46% of men, 16% of women said over this past week. 24% uh, of men in America indicated uh, today or yesterday. So almost half of American adult men under 40 are weekly viewers of pornography, about a quarter of them viewed it yesterday or today. Uh, one commentator said this way. He said, men today can see more flesh in five minutes than their great-grandfathers could their entire life, searching actively for it. That there's been a big shift in the culture today. Now, let me say again, I'm not trying to shame any of you because here's the deal. You didn't make this. I, mean, I don't know, maybe some of you did. I don't know where you work. But <laughs> based on your age, none of you created this environment. But the point is, it has affected you. So this proliferation is new in your day. It's, not, it's, it's unlike anything we've ever seen on the planet Earth before. The same guy who said, man, you can see more than your grandfather could in five minutes. He said, and we are not prepared for that in an evolutionary perspective. You're not ready for it. It's thrown us for a loop. So the proliferation is historic, and the problems it's created are, are fairly acute. Relationally, it's impacted the way we relate to each other. So that's really what I want to talk about in the next little segment here is how it's affected the way we relate to each other. And everyone I'm going to quote is not a Christian, doesn't have any kind of religious dog in the fight as they kind of assess what's happening in the culture today. Naomi Wolf uh, is a self-described liberal feminist, she says this, she said, for two decades, I've watched young women experience the continual mission creep of how pornography has lowered their sense of their own sexual value and their actual sexual value. When I came of age in the 70s, it was still pretty cool to be able to offer a young man the actual presence of a naked, willing young woman. You could get a pretty enthusiastic response by just showing up. She said, well, I'm 40 and mine is the last female generation to experience that sense of sexual confidence and security in what we had to offer. She said, the young women who talk to me on campus about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up, they can never ask for what they want, and if they do not offer what porn offers, they cannot expect to hold a guy. So 
So one of the impacts of this proliferation of imagery is an effect on the confidence of women in society today, whether they view it or not. And the ability to feel that they can hold a guy. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, you know, the Academy Award winner, was the victim of a hacking. You remember, uh, she had taken nude photos of herself to send to her boyfriend who lived in another town, and someone hacked it and put them out online, and she was talking to Vanity Fair about that experience, and they asked her, why'd you even take those photos in the first place? And this is what she said, either your boyfriend is going to look at porn or he's going to look at you. That's, that's how she views relationship today. Uh, Naomi Wolf comments this way. She says, does all this sexual imagery in the air mean that sex has been liberated? Or is it the case that the relationship between the multi-billion dollar porn industry, compulsiveness, and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between agribusiness, processed food, supersized portions, and obesity? She said, sex has been commodified. We, we took it out of the bedroom and we gave it to multi-billion dollar corporations. And she said, so as that's happened, it's shifted the way we are able to relate to each other. Uh, Christopher Ryan's a guy who uh, wrote a book entitled Sex at Dawn, which I'm not recommending. And um, he's a proponent of non-monogamy, but he was asked in an interview with Vanity Fair about Tinder and particularly what, what they were asking about were the problems of sexualized technology. And uh, he says it's the same pattern manifested in porn use. He said the appetite's always been there, but it had restricted availability. With new technologies, the restrictions are being stripped away, and we see people are sort of going crazy with it. I think it's the same thing that's happening with this unlimited access to sex partners. People are gorging. That's why it's not intimate. You could call it psychosexual obesity, is what he said. Now, again, these are people with a, a liberal sexual ethic, so they're not reading a Bible. They have no, like, moral constraints because of religious convictions. They're just looking at society and saying, hey, we kicked down some boundaries, and we're seeing as it spills out... It's, it's less like nourishment and more like fast food, and it's creating an isolation. So the idea that, you know, do whatever sexually as long as it doesn't hurt someone doesn't really hold because the reality is the lustful gaze, unrestrained, is hurting all of us. And uh, Mark Regnerus, I won't go into details now, but he quotes a neuroscientist that says, you know, in the past, the porn industry has... Uh, characterize their opposition as, as primarily religious. He says, but the reality is porn addiction harms human bonding. And, and I won't quote many more stats. We've got to move on. But the reality is uh, dozens of studies have confirmed that, that this bathing in sexualized images has led to self-reported lower relationship satisfaction, lower relationship quality, tend to experience more negative communication with a romantic partner, feeling less dedicated to the relationship, less sexually satisfied, more likely to commit infidelity, tend to see monogamy as unrealistic, and lower self-esteem in the men and women. Uh, and it's led to earlier sexual debuts in relationships because rather than sex now being uh, the culmination of our love, it is now an anchor I throw into a relationship to try to secure the possibility of love. So rather than expressing love, it's a thing we introduced earlier, hoping that love will be on the other side. But statistically, what we're seeing among your generation is an earlier sexual debut in a relationship is not a good predictor of the survival of a relationship. It's actually a good predictor that the relationship won't survive. That all this sex has led us away from each other. And from God. That's one of the craziest things. Uh, Samuel Perry's a sociologist at the University of Oklahoma. Do they have those there? I guess they do. 
Good for you, Oklahoma. <laughs> the parking lot of Texas. Um, he says there's a direct... So I had to throw a joke in there, Oklahoma. You've got to laugh sometimes to keep from crying. But... Um, <laughs> He notes a direct correlation between a relationship with sexualized imagery and growth in religious doubt and declining importance of religion. Isn't that a fascinating thing? That God gave us the gift of sex for bonding. It releases hormones that create bonding. It's meant to reinforce emotional bonding. But when we remove it from a relationship with a human and put it into these situations where we're just now using it as a commodity, it's actually damaged our ability to connect with each other and it's damaged our ability to connect with God. That what he created for bonding is now reinforcing isolation. Last quote, and then we'll move on. Naomi Wolf. She says, mostly when I'm asked about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on audiences of young men and young women alike. They know they're lonely together, even when conjoined. And this imagery is a big part of that loneliness. What they don't know is how to get out how to find each other again, erotically, face-to-face. Other cultures know this. And I'm not advocating return to the days of hiding female sexuality, but I'm noting that the power and charge of sex are maintained when there's some sort of sacredness to it, when it's not on tap all the time. In many more traditional cultures, it's not prudery that led them to discourage men from looking at pornography. It is rather because those cultures understand male sexuality and what it takes to keep men and women turned on to one another over time, to help men in particular to, as the Old Testament puts it, rejoice with the wife of thy youth, let her breast satisfy thee at all times. These cultures urge men not to look at porn because they know that a powerful erotic bond between parents is a key element of a strong family. Let me, let me just clue you into what you just heard there. Self-professed, non-religious, liberal feminist just quoted the Old Testament sexual ethic favorably. She says maybe there was something to this idea of boundary, not as a restrictive septic pond, but as the banks of a river that allow this to flow in a life-giving way. Maybe there was something to this. Maybe what we have here, all this liberty, has not brought us freedom. Maybe this liberation of sexuality has led us to bondage. And I would argue to you that a lot of the movements you see in the streets now are so different than what you saw back in the 60s. Now the call is for restraint, the Me Too movement. That people are saying we kicked down some boundaries that maybe should go back up. Now let me just say, again, it's really different for our generation because of the amount of it that's online. But this whole situation is not particularly historically new. Like in ancient Rome, there was a much looser sexual ethic. Men could sleep with whoever. I guess anybody could. But whenever you have a society with a looser sexual ethic, it tends to favor men because they're more interested in sex and powerful wealthy men because they have the influence and money to create situations where they get more sex. And so it created a moment where men would exploit women and other men and children for their Sex, that happened in ancient Rome. Uh, it happens still today. It, uh, a looser sexual ethic is how you get a Harvey Weinstein. What's fascinating about ancient Rome is, man, I got really interested in why would Romans become Christians? Like, if you were a part of ancient Rome and wealthy and successful, why would you join this fledgling Christian movement where you might get killed? Well, this is a neat little club. What do you guys do? Get murdered? I'm in. Like, who would join that club? And you know, one of the most attractive things about the Christian community was their sexual ethic. The fact that the women seemed happier 
and the men seemed happier, and the, and the children. And so it was interesting, because Rome would look at him and be like, your sexual ethic is backward, regressive, weird, and attractive. You just seem happier than us. And one of the things that drew people to Jesus is what Jesus is doing here. I'll, I'll be honest, when I first read this passage, when Jesus was like, I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. When I was younger, I was like, come on. Like, that's just so like, you already did it. You're like, ah, she was just, I didn't, ah, oh, man. Like, it just felt a little too high. But now I realized he isn't being the morality pl- police here. He's not measuring the hem of all your dresses. Like, hold on, you know, like, that's not what he's doing. He can just see downstream. The lustful gaze unrestrained is going to lead you to a place where it's harder to meet each other, harder to date, harder to get married, and harder to enjoy marriage. And so Jesus sees the damage downstream and says, let's cut it off up here. He's not saying this because he's prude or rude. He's saying it because he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. And I see it differently that way now. So he warns us, and here's the principle he warns us with, that man, he he doesn't start with their bodies. He goes back to the intent of their eyes and their imagination. What you look at through the eyes affects your heart. And he's quoting Job there. You know, Job 31.1. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. And then he says, if my heart goes after my eyes and my feet go after a woman, may God judge me. He understood. What I gaze in in my eyes will stir my heart and move my life. So what do you entertain with your eyes? Uh, The book Atomic... Uh, habits talks about this. You know, maybe in a more kind of business-like language, they talk about cues and craving and response and reward. That when I see a cue, it kickstarts a craving, and so I respond to get a reward. Uh, You see this with food. This was me all through COVID. I would walk through the kitchen and be like, oh, cookie. And as soon as I saw it, it kickstarted a craving. I want to eat you, right? And so then I would do it and I'd feel a reward. I feel good inside until I gained about 10 COVID pounds and then was like, you know what? This costs too much. I don't want to keep doing this. But I realized every time I see a cookie, it just starts the cycle. It's like, cue, craving, respond. And I realized, oh man, I got to change the cue. And what Atomic Habit says, he says, man, eliminate the cues from your home and it'll decrease the cravings. Which happened, I told my wife, you gotta get all these snacks out of the house, what are you trying to do to me? And so we got them out of the house and what would happen? I would feel it sometimes like, oh, I want a cookie. Oh, there are no cookies. Oh man, Uh, I guess I'll read a book, write a poem, go on a walk, I don't know. And what happened? Suddenly my imagination was freed up. You see that? Here's one of the crazy things. I had a friend who's a, was a sex addict and uh, recovering. And he said, you know what's so wild, man? Is he said, when I got this stuff out of my life, he said, my creativity came back. He said, I didn't even know I lost it. He said, but my imagination had been so filled with these images. When I cut the images out, my imagination kickstarted in some other areas. He said, I started writing songs again. I started biking again. I started going on trips with friends. He said, it just, it unlocked uh, some things that I had lost. And he realized, man, this was costing me things I didn't want to give up. And so he made a change because what goes into the eyes affects the heart. These images affect your imagination. So if you want a pure imagination, you got to get a purity to your eyes. Now, again, notice here he talks about lustful intent. He's talking about your intent here, uh, the intent of the gazer, because our, our intent can change, right? I, I remember when I was a youth pastor right out of college, uh, I had all these young girls in my ministry. Man, when I looked at them, I thought, uh, word association. Uh, people I meant to care for, people I meant to help, uh, my little sister, because they looked like my little sister. So I just thought of like young women I want to see flourish under God. And I remember coming and visiting some buddies up here in Dallas and uh, 
my same age and some girls walked by same age and they started making sexual comments about these girls. And I got super offended. I'm like, how dare you? And then I realized, man, we're the same age, looking at the same girls, but our intent is really different and that intent matters. And so notice here, he's not necessarily talking to the women in his illustration to make a change. This isn't a talk where he was like, all right, ladies, so everyone has to wear moo-moos and hoods, maybe a good idea. He doesn't do that. He puts it on the person who's looking and says, hey, you gotta be honest with yourself about your intent. And look, I'm, I'm not trying to present myself as a super holy person. Like I said, I, I ran into pornography like many of you at a very young age before I was looking at it. And it had that weird effect of being really alluring because looking at naked women is fascinating to men and you're meant to find it to be so. But then seeing it divorced from relationship the way that it was also introduced a bunch of shame into my heart. And it just did that weird dance where like I'm drawn to it and repulsed by it and I'm repulsed by me and, and I dislike this proliferation of sexualized imagery because I see it rob people of their hearts so much. And so I'm not mad at you if it's something you've struggled with. I'm mad at it because it's a distortion. Sex isn't the devil's game. The devil's game is distorted. And I don't like that. And I don't like the way it steals a lot of the vibrancy and creativity out of a lot of the young people I get to minister to. And so I want to see it change. And what Jesus advocates is this practice of, man, if your eye causes you to sin, he says your right eye, if it causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body to go into hell. The practice, he says, is restraint can bring liberty. Restraint can bring liberty. If what I see through my eyes is corrupting my imagination and corrupting my action, then I will change what I see with my eyes. Now, is he advocating mutilation? No. Uh, Although some people historically in Christianity have read it that way. Famously, Origen, the great theologian, read it that way. He understood hand as a euphemism for the male organ, so he cut his off. Uh, At the Council of Nicaea, they told everyone, stop it. Don't do that anymore. It's a bad call. And that was a good decision by our religious leadership. Um, Because I love the way John Piper said it. Jesus says, cut out your right eye. Is he being literal? No, because you could just lust with your left eye. And if you cut out both eyes, you can still lust in your heart. He just located the heart as the source of the problem in the earlier verse. And so he's being metaphoric here about the reality that, hey, we have to get a lot more radical with what we allow into our eyes to affect our imagination, to affect our actions. Get radical. He's not talking about mutilation. He's talking about mortification. There's some things that need to die in my life. If there's some cues that always kickstart this craving, I'm eliminating the cue. I'm getting it out of my life. Now, again, notice he says, if... Because you have to gauge you. If your eye causes you to sin, then cut it out. There may be some places and spaces that you go, you know what? This is a place that when I get here, my eye has a lustful intent. I can't do this anymore. Others of you, it may not be an issue. You have to be honest with you and how you deal with different challenges and frustrations. I've I've got a friend that uh, going to bars does not bother him. He can have a drink with a friend, hang out, visit. There's no temptation to get hammered and blackout. Like that's not his problem. But I have another friend that's a recovering alcoholic and he just had to be honest. He was like, dude, as soon as I walk into a bar, he's like, the sights, the sounds, the smells, he said, it just kickstarts this craving that's almost out of control. And he said, I wanna go hang with my friends there. And I just realized I just can't do it. I just, for me, I can't go in there. And so he had to mutilate himself socially. I'm, I'm gonna cut off a part of me socially to protect my life. But my other buddy can go there without a problem. 
but the buddy that can go there without a problem had a real issue with uh, pornography. And so he had to get pretty radical, getting a lot of screens out of his house, getting rid of computers in there, locking up his stuff with accountability software and friendships. But then he realized, man, as I was locking up all my screens, I would go to bookstores sometime because I was so like hard up for a sexual image. I would like be cruising this bookstore looking for books that might have something like that. And I realized, man, this is nuts. I got a problem. I just can't go to this bookstore anymore. And some of you have never thought that way about a bookstore. And I'm sort of sad for even putting it in your mind. (laughs) But he had to be real. For him, bars, fine, but no bookstores. And you got to be honest with you. There's places where you go, hey, to be honest, all my friends are watching this show. I can't watch that show. Hey, I'm following these people online because all my friends do, but I've noticed every time I look at that person's Instagram, I get unhappy and sad and don't like my body or my life. Well, guess what? Cut your eye out. Or quit looking at their thing. Uh, Mortification. I cut it off because that restriction actually brings liberty which we know in theory anyway, right? I mean, all of us know that. We, we, we agree with it with food, right? Uh, how does Simone Biles fly through the air like a bird? <laughs> it's because there's some team of trainers behind her meticulously counting out like every grain of salt. No, 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 it's too much. And her sugar intake and food intake, she's had to put so much restriction to her diet to liberate her to do some superhuman activity in gymnastics. And some of you are that way. You restrict your diet so you can climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest river and all the stuff that you do. So we all know that we agree with this practice Jesus is advocating. Restriction just might bring liberty. And he looks sexually at us and says, it's the same. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to save your life. This unrestrained, boundaryless sexuality has cost us too much. It's cost us too much. He says, I don't want you to pay that cost anymore. I want it to change. Now, let me close with this. Uh, You know, you hear this and I do think some of us should look at his command and say, I gotta make some changes and I gotta be honest. You may be like me where, man, I just, I got rid of my TV at one point, which for some people sounded so insane. And I'm like, man, he said, cut your eye out. Get rid of your TV. It's like, actually fine. I like read a bunch of books. Uh, You may need to make some real changes. But look, if all you do is walk out of here and feel bad about yourself, this is not a good sermon. And if you make some changes, I hope you do, that's also not sufficient. See, we didn't read it, but the way he starts this sermon is not with, I'm gonna tell you guys how to get your crap together. Write this down. Number one, cut your eyes off. You know, like he doesn't start with a list of rules to get you to maybe earn God's approval. Do you know where he starts the sermon? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? It means I have a spiritual poverty. I'm not enough to earn the approval of God. I'm not. I've fallen short. My hands are dirty. My eyes have seen things. My hands have done things. I have been depleted spiritually. And he says, when you admit that, you're blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. He says, when you realize how far you've gone from the standard, you mourn. You cry in the car like me. And he says, and when you do that, you're blessed because my comfort's coming for you. And he said, blessed are those who are meek. 
that means I'm not proud. I'm not puffing up my chest. Well, this is a problem for me. I'm not dealing with it. He said, no, 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 no. It's the meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. He said, I've come here to do something new. I'm a king inaugurating a kingdom. And the entrance into my kingdom, the entrance into the blessing of God, the smile of God, the love of God that's inexhaustible, he says, it doesn't come by getting your act together. It comes by admitting your need. I am poor. And I feel sad about it. And I'm not proud. I need you. I need the king to be what I'm not. And that's what Jesus loves to do. He loves to live the perfect life you couldn't. And then the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death's the payment for sin. He never sinned. He didn't need to die. So what he did on that cross is what David said earlier. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. He said, I know what you've done, and I'm taking all of it. And the shame of it, the sadness of it, every sticky, sad, isolating, lonely thing, he said, I am driving it like a stake through my heart, and I am burying it in the grave. And then I rise, and I leave it behind. And you trust me, and you rise. And yeah, I got a way for you to live this good, but where does it start? Jesus was asked, what's the work of the Father? And he said, believe in the one he sent. You come to Jesus. His arms are open wide. And I promise you, he wants to change you from the inside out. And then we can be what he says in the sermon, a city on the hill, shining out to a broken world to some answers, being again what the early church was, showing the world. We don't have a regressive sexual ethic. We have a liberating sexual ethic. What you have is slavery. What we have is freedom. And so if you're like, well, Ben, I don't know if any of this is realistic in the world today. We're not supposed to be like the world today. We're supposed to be like the kingdom today. And the world's a mess. But when they see what the king is doing in us, ah, oh, the porch will be a city on a hill. That's a pretty encouraging thought. So, Father, we love you. We thank you that there's grace today in Jesus. We thank you that nobody has sinned beyond what your arms can reach. It's insulting to suggest that our sin is stronger than your sacrifice. So if anybody is tempted to feel that way, well, he doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know how far I've gone. I haven't, but I know how mighty Jesus is. And don't insult him by saying your sin's stronger than he is. He can forgive you. And it magnifies his grace to forgive you. So come to him, because his arms are open wide. Admit, I'm poor in spirit, I'm needy. And I'm not happy about that, but I'm happy that I'm coming to you with that, because you promised me those who mourn and are meek and are poor in spirit, they're blessed, they're blessed, they're blessed. And Lord Jesus, would you heal me, forgive me, bless me? Anybody want that today, the grace of God today? I just want to encourage you right in your seat before we clear out of here and go wherever we're going to go. Let that be a holy space with Jesus. Let this be a moment that maybe you never forget as you deal honestly with him about what he was unafraid to speak of, the most intimate part of your life. And let him speak healing into it. Let him speak grace into it. Let him speak life into it.
We're yours, God, and we love you. We look to you.